Today, I am honored to have Jason Greenwood here. Jason is the godfather, at least in my eyes, of B2B e-commerce. And you might be thinking, what on earth is B2B e-commerce? But it's basically business-to-business sales, but done in a really digital way. And that is where Jason is an expert. Jason, great to have you. Thanks for coming on today. My absolute pleasure, man. Look, uh, it's happy to return the favor after you uh, graciously agreed to appear on my podcast talking about B2B, uh, all things B2B from a merchant perspective. So very, very happy to be here. Absolutely. And, you know, when we were going through the business, there were so many things where I was just thinking, gosh, why haven't we improved that? You know, why haven't we actually gone into bigger wholesalers, smaller wholesalers? How are we thinking about it? Obviously, people have done this before. And so hence why I wanted to to run run Jason through the numbers today. So Jason, welcome. This is our board pack. Um, it should be a relatively high level view of how we're running the business. We're going to drop you straight into it. Um, really want to get your candid thoughts of, you know, what could we improve? Anything that you really don't quite understand just yet um, and we can get into a bit more detail there um, sure you know I guess kick it off for those that haven't really been with us before 10% of our profits are donated to the animal on the sock and that's our reason for being why we're here today um, we try to do it in a sustainable way hence why it's not 100% of profits um, and we're really just trying to do better for the world and better for business so whether that's for the environment animals or socially and what we're trying to do is run a great business with with that so that we can really achieve our mission and ultimately we'd, we'd like all you know 10% of profits from every business to be donated to a good social cause or an environmental cause that makes sense for that business um jason i guess my first question have you seen this you know ethical environmental um you know focus take off yet in the b2b side of things that can be a bit more you know numbers focused what are you hearing from your clients there no, look, I think that what you guys are doing is, is pretty groundbreaking. I think almost every single D2C and B2B brand out there would like to adopt some form of greenwashing, um, for lack of a better term. And I'm seeing more greenwashing than I am genuine action on certain things. And I think that's because most of those businesses, particularly if they're very large businesses, they're very legacy businesses, they're, they've been around 20, 30, 40, 50 Hundred years in some cases, you know, they didn't. They weren't born with a social conscience. They weren't born with any sort of legit uh, sustainability credentials, and so they've kind of tried to bolt that on after the fact and trying to curry favor, I guess, with the green crowd. And in some respects, uh, from a governmental perspective, greenness is being crammed down our throats. And so there's a real resistance from the market. In some respects, people will say that they'll spend more money on green products. Uh, but oftentimes what we see that people do versus what they say they will do is very is very different. That's why we see that Shein, for example, is still you know the one of, if not the biggest fashion brands in the world, um, not not because people, I think, are out there to intentionally destroy the planet, but they don't necessarily fully appreciate the impacts that their purchases have on the planet, and they don't necessarily fully appreciate the impact that their purchase has on moving the market because they just think, well, it's a, it's a $10 top. It's a, it's a $5 pair of socks or it's a, whatever it is. Um, yeah. I think that, that consumers oftentimes they don't necessarily, they look at it as almost like peeing in the ocean. What, you know, what, what can I do? And so, um, to answer your question in a very roundabout way, I, I think that I see more green washing than I do genuine credentialed verifiable efforts to, do better for people and planet. Let's put it that Absolutely. way. Right. And one of the things that we're trying to, you know, really go down the right path of is we 
haven't we've you know we made a decision to not be a charity actually um, because we thought we could have more of an impact. But I totally you know hear what you're saying around it kind of gets into that place of greenwashing or, you know, old legacy businesses still are focused on the core business. And and that's, you know, why we're here. So we also want to make sure we, you know, I guess toe the line in both parties that work for both parties. So we are here for a profit and that's actually why we've made some changes to our business. Um, and so when we're going through one of these things, I, you know, as much as we are here to run a sustainable, you know, a sustainability focused business, we also want to run a business. So I'm kind of, you know, I guess toying with that idea at the moment on the board pack, at least in particular. Well, I, th- I think that one of the things that you've pointed out to me previously that really resonated with me is obviously the more successful you are as a business because because your giving back is based on a percentage basis, the more absolute profit that you make as a business, it's still based on the same percentage. So the, the, the more absolute help you can be to people and planet, right? To the market, to animals uh, that are represented on your products. And so I think of it as, well, the more successful you are as a business, the more successful you are as a giver, a, 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 a business that gives back uh, in the way that they have decided to give back to the planet. You can be a more effective in that effort and have greater impact the more successful you are. And I just I just use the analogy of, of you know, when you're in a, in a plane, what is the first thing they tell you? You know, in the case of an emergency, put your own bloody mask on first because you ain't going to be helping anybody if you're dead in the, in the you know, if you pass out in the, in the fuselage of the plane, you ain't going to be helping anybody. And so I just think put your own mask on first, make sure you're successful, make sure you're sustainable in the business and commercial sense, and then anything else that matters to you beyond that, you will be able to have a greater impact and pull bigger levers as a result. Absolutely. And that I think ties in nicely to you know our performance to plan here on a month on month view. Um, so we've got the Navy line here, which is this year, last year in gray, and then our forecasts in, in, um, in green here as well. The business on the right hand side, we've got our B2C businesses growing incredibly strongly, kind of 20 to 30% up um, you know, year on year. B2B, I'm, a, I'm afraid to say, is actually down, but that was really heavily down to the um, incentives that we received last year from FAIR, Angostore, uh, Creoweight and the like, where they were providing just incredible subsidies. Um, so we are down on year on year, but that in that respect, but we're only slightly down, um, you know, ten percent down uh, year on year as well. And we've actually tried to reduce, um, you know, the team size to make sure that we're you know staying sustainable um, in that way. But we're also thinking about what are the different ways we can grow the business. And you know, if I was to describe B two B to you, Jason, it's primarily those marketplaces. It's then. 2% our kind of what I'm calling manual wholesale, the likes of Makata, WPD app, that type of thing where they're coming directly to us. But we're struggling to get into the bigger retailers as well. And so starting to think about that kind of like size, we've got the proposition right, the product's working, um, but we still are struggling to kind of like get up to that next stage and then you know embed with our current customers that we've got and even more I guess, you know, solid sales relationship. And so that's where like we're, we're struggling a bit at the moment. Yeah, so I, I would, first of all, I, I think that, you know, from a board pack perspective, the first thing I, I would say is that your data has to tell a story. And I think you're, you're starting to weave that in there. But what I would do is I would, in between each of these statistical slides, I would put the like a, 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 a the next slide in between each of those statistical slides would be like a single paragraph takeaway or summary 
of that previous slide because and, and i would also on these slides i would make all of that text significantly bigger particularly the text around what each of those lines represent from a data perspective i'd make that text like five times bigger uh so that when you're looking at it because i had to kind of zoom in i literally had to zoom in on the slide so that i could tell what each slide represented and i think i think that if we can if we can make things a little bit more easily visually digestible, not only for us, but any potential investors, et cetera. I think digestibility is a really important part. And so digestibility also is, comes down to readability and, vi and visual layout and styling and design. So remember, you want this to, you want, you want these board packs to tell a story. Data is part of the story, but how you interpret the data and how you plan to make it actionable is the other part of the storytelling piece. And so I would, you know, you, you just expounded on, you know, you just expounded and explained a little bit more there about the, the right-hand side chart. And I would do that in, in one sentence or two. And, and, and I, I would cover that in, in a sort of almost like a mini executive summary on the next slide would be my recommendation. And I would then also, when I start thinking about B2B, B2B, well, full stop distribution matters, meaning how many potential ICPs, ideal customer profiles, how many potential customers can we get our product in front of realistically? Now our TAM, our quote unquote TAM, our total addressable market might be, you know, whilst you could broadly say, well, everybody who buys socks is our potential TAM, I, I would say that that's not really your TAM. I would say people that are willing to buy a premium product, yes, people that buy socks, uh, but people that want to buy a premium product, people that care about people and planet, people that are willing to pay a premium for that care and concern and put their money where their mouth is, mouth is. people that like unique designs and style, like uh, a unique sustainable fabric that feels nice against the skin. So they're paying for the, the look, the feel, and the quality of the product. You know, and so that dramatically is going to is going to dramatically reduce your TAM. And then you have to think about, okay, where do these people hang out? Where do they? What online communities do they hang out in? Do they hang out in mommy groups on on Facebook because they want to buy, you know, they want to buy sustainable products for their kids and they want to put something nice against their skin? Is that where our community hangs out? You have to start thinking about where are all the places where our potential TAM once we narrow it down to from all people who buy socks all the way down to all those other qualifying layers in our funnel when we when we narrow down to our final tam whatever that looks like where does that tam or where does that audience or where does that potential cohort hang out online and how can we become part of that conversation maybe it's mompreneurs for example who care about sustainability who care about the sustainability credentials of their own product let's say let's say it's mompreneurs and 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 a subset of these mompreneurs um, make sustainable skincare products from natural plant ingredients for example maybe it works out it turns out that because those females for example who are making the buying decisions for their family i know for example from a fashion perspective my wife kind of has the final say because I don't I don't really give a shit about fashion it doesn't really matter to me and so uh it's more up to my wife about what I buy and what she'll be seen with me in than what I spend my money on from a fashion perspective because I I'm I'm pretty hopeless when it comes to fashion and I'm more about comfort than I am looking good you know what I mean and so maybe it's that that the the female in a household 
is the one that makes the buying decision. And nine times out of 10, even if, she, even if her husband is going to wear your socks, she's actually done the buying of those socks. And so I, I just think there are sort of hidden cohorts. Once you narrow down who the likely buyer of your product is, there are hidden cohorts and they hang out in similar places because they have similar interests. And so it may not be an online fashion group, for example, a green fashion group that you're looking for. It may be something else that's tangentially linked or related to your brand, your business, your category. And I think these are the places that you want to be having those conversations and be be generously giving of your time and your energy and your knowledge in those groups. So let's say, for example, it's a mompreneur group and you know, people are in there asking questions about how to get a brand off the ground that has green credentials because it matters to them or has sustainability credentials because it matters to them. Well, you guys actually have experience in doing that. You have experience in being successful and building a business in this. So you can inject and insert yourself in that conversation without coming out and saying, Oh, by the way, this is our brand and come and look at our products. They oh, will, wow. they will want to know more by definition because you're giving advice. So for example, I'm on, I'm on Reddit and I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Quora. I'm in a lot of these communities where my ICP hangs out and they're asking a lot of questions. Now I go in there and I answer these questions. All I spend, you know, probably 50% of my day is spent on social media. Well, why is that? Because A, I want to give back to my community, but also it establishes me as a, an authority in my niche, in my vertical. And what do all of those platforms have in common? They all have a profile page. So if people like what I have to say and it's helpful to them, nine times out of 10, they're going to they're gonna seek out my profile. They're going to see what I do. And if it's relevant to them at the time, then they'll reach out to me via DM and say, hey, you know, it looks like you might be able to help me. Let's let's tee up a call and let's see if it would be worth working together. So I, I think you have to almost think of your business in the same type of fashion, but instead of it you building a personal brand like I am, because I'm a I'm a consultant, you're building a more of an umbrella brand with your company, but because you guys are fronting your company as human beings, people don't like to do business with companies. They like to do business with individuals, right? Unless you're a freaking Nike, you know, then you don't want to do business with an individual. But but you know, anything under those multi-hundred million dollar a year brands that have been around for a hundred years, apart from that, everybody likes to do business with people. And so that's, it, it gives me, it really frustrates me when a lot of these new e-com startups and they're, they're brand new and they've been up and running for two months or six months and they post on Reddit and they say, why am I getting no sales? You know, I've spent $5,000 on Facebook ads or Google ads, whatever, and I'm getting traffic to the website, but I'm getting no sales. Well, I go to their website. It looks like a bloody drop shipping website. You go to the shipping page and it says it'll be two to six weeks before you get your product. And then you go to the about us page and it's got one paragraph, uh, of generic information, Laura Mipsum type of information, no photo of the founders, no, no founder story, no reason for being, you know, nothing. It just, it just creates zero trust and zero credibility. And so I think you guys as being the co-founder faces of your brand, you have a unique opportunity right now until you get bigger and until you scale, until you need more people in the business to help you operationally. You have a unique opportunity to spend so much time in these communities that are represent a cross-section of your ICP and your TAM, 
you have an opportunity to be in there having conversations with these people every single day. And think of it almost like guerrilla warfare, right? It's guerrilla warfare to get your corporate brand out there because then when people follow back to your profile and then it links to Bearkind. That's how people are going to find out about you. But if you just become known as the helpful people, the caring people that I know you already are, then, then that will be inextricably linked with your brand for life. And once you get to a certain scale from a B2B perspective, then the demand will be grassroots demand. There will be people that will be going into their local clothing shops, their local sustainable stores, their local – you know, there, there's, there is more and more physical retail that is dedicated to, to sourcing sustainable green credential, legitimate green credentialed products. And if someone who is a customer of yours goes in there and they don't see your product or potential customer, then they can actually ask for it by name. So that's what I mean by grassroots demand. You, you, want, you want pressure coming from above and from below. So you, you want to be a magnet, not a lasso to your brand. And so and, – and I'm trying to do that with my personal brand. I'm trying to be a magnet not a lasso. So yes, you may need to establish a bit of an, um, an outbound cadence with reaching out to some of these bigger retailers, but I suspect that starting grassroots level with some of the, the small and mid-sized retailers first, that actually their buying, their sourcing decision is more considered as opposed to purely profit-driven. The big retailers, it's all about profit and it's all about demand. So unless you already have massive demand for your product in the market that effectively they can draft off of, it's going to be hard to have the conversation. Whereas the values that your business bring to the table, they will matter much more to small and medium-sized retailers that have between one and 10 stores, right? And so yeah, it's an amazing. easier conversation to have if you establish an outbound cadence. It's going to be easier to have conversations with those small and mid-sized retailers that are usually still family-owned. They're not public companies yet, and it will be easier to have a values-based conversation with them versus a revenue-based conversation and a demand-based conversation. Then once you establish a stronghold in small and medium-sized businesses like that, and as the demand grows and once you get to say – once you get to say roughly – 10 to 20 million ARR, annual recurring revenue through your business, then all of a sudden that will be a signal that there is greater brand demand in your market outside of that super core niche that you start out with. It's, it's, it's a land and expand approach. And so by landing and expanding in places where you can win by virtue of your ethics and your values as a business, starting there then that will allow you to expand into the bigger players where effectively you're going to say, look, we have this track record of demand growth over the last two, three years. You guys don't want to miss out on this. And if you, and if you want to be more underneath the halo of sustainability, then you need to be carrying more sustainable brands. We're that brand. And we've already, we've already made great strides in building demand for this brand that, that you will be able to draft off of uh, once we get to the scale. So these are the types of lenses I think you need to think through as a business because you guys are still a small, small, relatively small business. And so I think from a strategic perspective, that land and expand model while you have time on your hands to establish a stronghold in communities related to the types of products that you guys make, that feels like a massive opportunity to me. 
Yeah, I love this. I mean, you know, as we're talking about kind of like plugging this B2B gap, it's a discussion that Lucy and I are having literally this morning around what are we actually going to do for outbound sales? And I'm kind of sitting there thinking, this is great. You know, I can find a bunch of leads, but I don't really feel like I've got something where I can yeah, grab that, you know, trusted position, come into them with something that's just not cold straight away. I was going out to a bunch of distributors this morning and we're really unknown in that particular market. And I just like, I'm just sitting here thinking, yeah, what's my ICP? Maybe I have a 50% idea of what that is. What is my outbound cadence? I'm starting to get that, but that's probably in its infancy. And then what's our profile? How are we hanging out? And, you know, as you're saying this, last year we had some of our biggest months, kind of 50K, you know, 50K on the the wholesale business uh, in June. And that was where we went out to where our customers are from a trusted party talking about whilst it was about our products, it was more about bamboo socks in general and how, oh yeah, we happen to also sell them if you're interested. And that's when we did, you know, we've struggled to really um, mirror that success anywhere else in any of the other months. And so that's absolutely something that we, yeah, we have to do. That's interesting. Also look at the success of other companies that specialize in bamboo fabric. Now you don't necessarily want to try to replicate them and what they do, but they can give you clues on, how they've been successful. Look at the communities they hang out in. Look at the social work that they do. Look at look at how they communicate with the market and the channels they do so through. And look at the communities that they play in. And I think that, you know, I'm thinking of a brand, there's a famous brand in Australia called Bamboo Body and right. all of their products. Uh, it's basically sportswear. It's like the Lululemon of, of bamboo fabric, basically. Think of it. Think of them as kind of that, right? And, and I know they've been very successful in, in effectively differentiating themselves from the broader activewear market of which it's super, super competitive. So they, they want to cater to activewear buyers that also have a social conscience. Now, when you think about it, that is a perfectly natural fit given the fact that so many activewear buyers are there into their yoga, they're into their, you know, they're into their breath work, they're into, you know, sure, a lot of them just go to the gym and they're gym bunnies, don't get me wrong, but then there's a, a, a big cohort of, of that group of people that are more, let's just say, more tree-hugging, tree hippie-like per- personas that go to Tulum every year and they hang out and then they take pictures for Instagram um, and and you know that that's their that's their kind of persona that they that they position with the world. And if they can get a product that they love, they can get a product that is comfortable. They can get a product that is sustainable and adds to their personal credentials as say an influencer or just as aware of the product that says, "Hey, I care about the world, but I also want to look good and feel good doing it." I, I think they've tapped into that real real st- strongly. They've tapped into that existing market an existing category, but differentiating heavily in that category for that subset of those activewear consumers that are right, like th- th- it's a perfect fit for them, right? In, in, the, yeah. in all the communications, in their product development, everything, like it's a perfect fit for them. And, I, and, I, and, I, and, and again, I don't know how you know, commercially successful or otherwise they are. I just know that they're pretty bloody well-known. That brand is, 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 is bloody well-known. And I think it's, it starts there. And if you become well-known as a brand, commercial success generally follows. 
Yeah, and we're, I've not tried to fo- focus on the bamboo side of it yet. We've been focusing more on, on the sock side, but that resonates so truly. Happy Socks is the 800-pound gorilla in our market. And, you know, what are they doing that's right? How are they going out to clothing boutiques? What type of point-of-sale stands are they offering when we're going in and having a look at those of those stores? Um, and that was actually something that, you know, really drove us to drop our prices recently um, to kind of be more margin-focused, more small business-focused that we could start to grow out to them but i hadn't considered it from like their brand as well for happy socks is is very unique um and Mm -hmm. people know it they've been around for 15 years now um their quality has really you know gone down in comparison to where it was i think you know trust pilot they're 1.8 stars where you know close to five and you know with with hundreds of reviews now and we're sitting there just thinking like you know what are we getting wrong but that brand is so strong for them but I want to mm-hmm. I want to move on, Jason, and I want to show you kind of like I guess the the rest of the business outside of just you know how's the performance to plan. So this is how our revenue is breaking down at the moment. About half of it's coming from um, the wholesale business, which is mostly fair. We've got some wholesale pricing discount, and then our manual Mercata sales are, are not represented here, but but they are around the same size as the the wholesale pricing discount. And then our D to C kind of bringing together the online store Etsy. Um, you know, Miracle and Shop is about you know six thousand four hundred pounds. Month on month, slightly down. Year on year, massively up. We're pretty comfortable with where we're at with marketing spend. We've kind of sat that at about one point five to two grand per month, depending on um, you know the availability of you know marketing content that we've got available to us that we want to put out. And we're kind of staying relatively hovering around this kind of twenty four pound mark. The product backlog, I'd say at the moment is, you know, pottering along is maybe a bit rude, but, you know, almost 12 new items in there. It doesn't look like much, but it's starting to get some real serious product velocity. And then um, from a profitability perspective, it's just at a a high level looking at, you know, time to fulfillment and our fulfillment cost as a percentage of revenue. We are trying to hover it at about that 20% mark. we're still starting to get a bit of fluctuations around our postage costs in particular, which are going up as well as some returns. But returns is a bit lumpy, but it's really only kind of like, you know, one or two returns a month at the moment. So not the end of the world. Overall, if I had to say like, are we comfortable with the business? Year on year down 20%. The online store up 20, you know, or 33% for our D2C business. And then, you know, the wholesale business not supported by those incentives. I think we still have room to improve and we want to kind of really nail down on the fair side of things a bit more as well. Yeah, so two, two, two immediate things that leap out from this page. That left-hand side panel there, I would make that a pie chart. Uh, I, I'd make it completely visual. Uh, I would turn to something completely visual because it's more easy to digest that data. Second of all, I would, if I was an investor looking to invest in or buy your business, channel risk to me is, is what leaps off the page. We, we have such a dependence on basically two channels right now, which is, which is fair in our online store that we need to de-risk the business ASAP from a channel mix perspective, just because that is, you know, to the point where I would say that that should be your top priority and you know if let's say you were represented in in this in this pie chart i think that what we what we would see is if you let's say you were selling on the amazon channel for example in addition to in addition to fair and let's say you were hypothetically selling on the ebay channel in addition to fair and let's say you were selling on 
uh, the iconic in Australia, right? Those, those three, let's say you were selling on those three additional marketplaces. Then what I would do is I would break those out in the, in the, in the pie chart uh, basically as marketplaces. Basically, the moment you have more than one sub-channel within a parent channel grouping, I would start breaking those out by total sales by on marketplaces, for example. I would break that out as one value, and then I would break out the, the sub-percentages within that channel grouping. I would break that out so that it was clear that we're over time de-risking our business from a channel mix perspective. So I, I, I would say more, even more important than new product development for you guys would be channel diversification. Because when I look at this, it scares the shit out of me. Because I go, what if, what if fair was to fall over tomorrow? Or what if, you know, it, I this think is about very this unlikely to happen. Time, yeah. I realize that, you know, I realize that I realize it's, it, these things are outlier events, but let's just say fair falls over. They got a business, they get bought, they triple their fees. They, you know, th there's so many things that could happen to jeopardize that channel that are outside your control that all of a sudden either the total revenue through that channel goes down or the uh, net margin goes down dramatically on that channel. And, and so I, in either one of those events, they are catastrophic for your business, right? And so I would say that from a, from a risk management perspective, we want to diversify our channel mix as fast as possible. And, and I know that's hard, especially, you know, it, it takes effort and it takes work, but especially with some of the omni-channel connectors that are out there, uh, the omnivores of the world, the channel advisors of the world, etc. It's pretty easy to plug in from your Shopify store in, in, in at least testing and trying some of these other marketplaces. I think you would potentially have some awesome success on Mercado Libre and some of the LATAM uh, marketplaces as well, because they're they're oftentimes more ethically and socially conscious than some of the English speaking world can be. Sometimes the English speaking world is maybe a little bit more, maybe a, a, a little more materialistic, a little bit more keep up with the Joneses type of mentality. Whereas I find now that I live in Mexico, the LATAM mindset is it's family first because they're like 85% Roman Catholic. So their focus is on family, their focus is on nature, their focus is on community. So they, they just by definition of their culture, they are more they are more sensitive to the ethics of of business because of their natural cultural tendencies so i i think i think you you've got some channel mix challenges here that as an investor i'd be looking at and i'd be going damn we got to over the next let's put a plan in place to where we double the the channel mix that we have today within within 12 to 18 months yeah, that's perfect. And it's something, it keeps me up at night thinking about, you know, it really is within, I guess, you know, if I was running those fair marketplaces, Angus store marketplaces, I'd be sitting there thinking, okay, well, you know, I need to increase my revenue. I'm going to increase, you know, fees by 1%. And, you know, the next 10 managers of that business are going to do that without, without doubt in my mind. And I love the way of thinking about it from a channel mix risk perspective and i'm just thinking of seeing you know the bar graphs or the column graphs over time as they kind of you know chunk up and improve month on month and yeah i've not thought about it in that in that perspective at the moment where we're thinking about you know going into the larger retailers 
we're thinking about getting direct wholesale relationships, not just a marketplace relationships. But what are we actually, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not measuring that and what measures matters and what measures will get changed. So that's something yeah, we need to address really quickly. I guess from a, a scale perspective, Jason, you know, we're kind of, we're at about 500,000 pounds of revenue a year at the moment. Um, 60% of that, 80% of that comes in quarter quarter four. And, mm-hmm. you know, that seasonality is, is a big piece here as well. Um, but we're trying to, you know, I guess, level that out as much as we can. But I guess my question for you is more like at this scale, 500,000 pounds of revenue, what, you know, it kind of makes sense to me that we're a bit beholden to some channels. Um, you know, is there any guidance that you'd say, okay, looking at this business at this size that you, you're thinking that comes to mind as you consider, you know, businesses that you've worked with that are a million, two million, kind of those steps above us? Yeah, look, I, th- I think channel mix before catalog or range extension, it's easier for most brands to execute on, Right. Because right. when you when you range extend or when you catalog extend or when you category extend, there's usually some pretty big costs associated with that in terms of design, new product development, perhaps new manufacturing partners, sourcing of raw materials. There's there's logistics. There's just there's a lot of additional expense in catalog extension, especially when you're a designer, manufacturer, distributor of your own product like you guys are. It's not like you're just buying in 20 different products from 20 different brands and then and then redistributing that's not what you're doing you're a you're a you're a brand you're a manufacturer you're a wholesaler and you're a distributor right and so therefore all of the cost structures associated with each of those tiers all the way from manufacturing to get it into the consumer's hand you're responsible for and so those are those are cost structures that are fairly rigid and and there, there's a certain amount of costs that you just can't get away from whereas increasing the manufacturing of your existing range from a volumetric perspective so that you can service more channels and more demand of that existing catalog, that is usually significantly easier for manufacturers to digest because they're working with the exact same manufacturers. They're working in the exact same regions. They're just, they're just dramatically increasing their volume. And actually what that, what that serves to do is it serves to increase the profitability, the unit, the unit profitability becomes significantly better at scale, right? Because usually, uh, you know, if 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 a, if a contract manufacturer is making a hundred thousand pairs of socks a year, and you jump that up to half a million socks per year, you might be able to save twenty five percent of your manufacturing costs. You might be able to save five percent on distribution costs, and say, for example, three PL costs and all the other costs that are associated with running your business. When you do one thing and you do it well and you scale that one thing, your unit economics dramatically improve as a rule, which is why so many brands, when they go into China, for example, their expectation is not that they will be profitable in China because 95% of those foreign businesses, they're not profitable in China. They lose money in China. But what it does for them is it allows them to achieve economies of scale so that Everything they sell everywhere else in the world is orders of magnitude more profitable. So they use China as a scaling channel, and they use the rest of the world as a profitability channel. So yeah. these are the types of things I'm seeing in the market. That yeah, that is so helpful as like just a a guide because you know one of the things you will see in a couple of slides later is 
our biggest risk right now is I've got almost 100k sitting in stock and you know cash levels that we you know I'd much rather have half of that in cash for sure and we're trying to do this range expansion to give our customers more options for products that they really need black white socks simple plain socks that still save animals which is you know different to what our brand's done before but kind of expands us into a like a new customer niche around which is essentially men rather than you know females which is typically who have a soccer percent about a 30 to 70 percent split at the moment so we're trying to change that but just thinking about it of range extension versus distribution extension versus geographic extension we've got a good platform here in the uk but we don't have one in the us we need to do that and i was thinking about it from you know a, a different view of like it seems like another you know angle of you know complexity but actually it's an angle of scale that we're not getting it in the business at the moment and i really need to yeah expand that out quite quickly well the other thing that you guys could look at is if you want to have more quote-unquote plain socks then you could put the animal on the the top of the instep or on the sole of the sock to where it's still a plain looking sock up top but it's kind of crazy underneath you know i i think that you could still you you could still stay brand true and brand loyal and you could still cater to a similar market but broaden your reach or your potential reach by making them you know not more generic but more flexible in the types of scenarios that those socks could be worn in but you still again you still have the animal you still have the support maybe it just goes on the on the toes uh, of, of the sock or maybe it just goes on the sole or maybe it just goes on the top of the instep of the of the sock so i think there's I think there's probably quite a few ways you could still stay very brand true and very on point with the messaging and communication and the ethos that you take go to market with that 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 keeps you a differentiated brand but also expand the flexibility of the usage of your products and therefore the reach of your products. So I think there's there's a way that you can do it without compromise, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I love that. And it's, I think it's probably also a really good way to start to think about kind of that next level of detail on the wholesale business. And, you know, I think probably one of the things that we're trying to consider is this channel expansion, but it's really just kind of fair and everybody else. Um, but really fair is kind of my direct relationships, my marketplace relationships. I should be splitting that out to show that kind of relationship. And then if I was to talk to, to this slide, um, one of the things that we're trying to build out is that kind of simple, simplistic, um, you know, funnel view of what is our revenue, where is that coming from, our cold email leads, with those page views on fair on the website, what have you, um, and then you know, I guess, are we treating those customers in the right way in terms of you know the reviews that we've gotten, the time to fulfillment that we've gotten there, um, and so we're kind of you know struggling as you can see compared to last year quite a bit down. Um, you know, a few thousand pounds below plan, um, but we're really needing to, you know, up our, you know, the cold email leads that we've got in HubSpot and going after them, warming them up. Um, but it's it's relatively simplistic as I, you know, compared to what I imagine that you've seen before. Yeah, and look, I would also uh, just as you were talking, I was thinking, how can we, you know, how can we leverage social proof? From a B2B perspective, because a lot of brands don't think about that. They think about it from a D2C perspective and from a B2C perspective. 
and they think about UGC from you know customers and product reviews and product videos and and um, you know social social posts tags things like that and, and in situ shots you know of me wearing these cool socks and I want to take a photo and I want to put it on Instagram. But what a lot of B2B brands don't think of, they don't think of the social proof that comes from your distribution partners. So these small boutiques that you can do a short five-minute interview with of, hey, how did you find out about us? Why did you decide to carry our product? Why does it matter to you? You know, what, Where was the values alignment between our two brands that felt like it was a good fit? You know, how has this performed commercially for you? Has it been beneficial commercially for you because it was maybe a product that you couldn't get anywhere else? There was just nothing else exactly like this that, that gave it a unique quality that meant that we could easily more sell it. You know, we could more easily sell it as a, as a small boutique because of XYZ reasons. Because remember, we're, we're looking for social proof from a B2B perspective just as much as humans. We're looking for social proof from a B2B perspective just as much as we are a B2C, D2C perspective. Because remember, those are, buyer, those are potential B2B buyers too. So why should I buy into you? Why should I buy into your brand? Well, oh, cool. This other brand, this other, this other B2B customer has, done, has gone through the exact same diligence exercise that I'm going through right now. Cool. They've helped me jump the queue, so to speak, in terms of my due diligence. And that's why… When I think about my own website, now admittedly we're in very different industries. I'm, I'm selling a, a digital service, not a physical product. But why I worked so hard in the first six months of having this consulting business to get some really, really good testimonial interviews with my customers and with my partners. Because that social proof makes it easier for someone to then come and buy my services and be trustworthy that I'm gonna deliver on what I say I'm gonna deliver on as a partner. That becomes a hell of a lot easier to digest in a video interview format. So I think you also need to think about, you know, cause you, you've already, kind of already got the D2C bit dialed from a website perspective and you're already, you're already thinking about how can we introduce, you know, how can we weave social proof into our story from a D2C perspective, and I think you're doing that effectively. But man, we got to replicate that same level of, of social proof on the B2B side. I love that. And it's something that we've not thought about at all, you know, where we really want, I guess the best way to put it is our customers are always in that important, but we're not putting them in that urgent perspective of getting social proof. We have some incredible businesses that stock our socks. You know, I'm just thinking about the Scottish Seabird charity. You know, they were probably the creme de la creme. They, you know, sell, we, we donate to them. They're actually one of our charity partners. Um, they sell thousands of socks themselves, supporting the puffins. It's, a, it's awesome. And we really want to go there, check out what they're doing well in the store, see, you know, the business itself. It ticks that, you know, charity angle, being able to kind of go you know, really sustainable. It talks about a story. It shows also our wholesale partners and our retailers what is actually possible and what people are doing well that we're not, you know, we're really not talking about that. And this is a, why is it, why have I not made it, you know, important? I thought it was maybe like a branding exercise, but actually it's maybe more of a sales plus branding exercise, which, you know, when we're not getting done at the moment. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and also focusing on those charity interviews as well. So for me, like, it's all fine and good that you say, hey, we donate to this list of, of charities based on the, on the animal that's represented on our, on our, on our socks. But, but man, I tell you, storytelling is such a, it's such a powerful thing. And video storytelling in particular is such a powerful thing because it's, it's well, as of today, 
uh, until AI can generate, you know, generative video from scratch, from nothing. Um, as of today, video is the most authentic communication method or one of the most authentic communication mediums there is because you just can't fake this type of dialogue. You can't fake this type of interaction that you and I are having right now. And I think that, you know, just as social proof from a D2C perspective is important, you've got, you've got two other sets of partners here. You've got, the, you've got the B2B buying customers, but you've also got the charity partners. And they are equally important in the pantheon of importance of social proof. They're, in my, in my opinion, they are, you know, it's a third, a third, a third. It's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, you've got the, the end consumer of the product, you've got the, the B2B buyers of the product, and then you've got the charity partners that you work with. In my opinion, each of those cohorts are equally important from a social proof of, uh, perspective, and I think there needs to be equal focus on those three cohorts. That's such a good breakdown because, you know, we're probably just really focusing each within their individual silos. So we have the customers, but that's on the D2C business. We have the charity partners, but that's more just like us looking after them, making sure that they've got you know the right level of support, we're getting the donations right, this type of thing. Then individually, again, we're looking after the wholesale businesses, but that's more from a servicing, how are the socks selling, but we're not linking that up in a story. And I think we have such a powerful story in particular with you know that kind of authentic business that you know Lucy's building in particular around young solo female entrepreneurs who has an environmental conscious that is you know trying to grow a wholesale business trying to help you know a lot of other businesses grow as well and and do better and kind of you know i guess shining a light that you can partner with a charity relatively easily you know we've gone extreme and we're, we're partnering with 25 plus but yeah i think that's been you know so helpful well it's a synergistic effort right so when you think about it if you highlight and put the spotlight on your charity partners and you really look at it as a partnership way beyond the funding element, if you feature them heavily in your content at all times and you create a content calendar with each of those charity partners to where they're the Halo brand and you are drafting off of them, but it's synergistic, right? You're putting them in a spotlight. That they may not otherwise even that, that they will be able to access other donators, meaning people that decide to donate to them directly outside of just buying your product. It's going to put them in the spotlight, and it's going to put you in the spotlight. So it's very synergistic, right? And it's exactly the same with your B two B buying partners, right? If you put them in the spotlight and you make them the focus, not you, then all of a sudden you're going to potentially drive more demand for them. Which means, by definition, you're going to have more selling opportunities in store with them. So I think that whilst you know, whilst UGC from a D2C perspective, meaning your consumer UGC, that is kind of almost all about you, right? But the UGC of your brand partners and your charity partners, that actually has to be all about them. You, you are putting the spotlight on them and you're getting a little bit of the halo. You're getting a, a little bit of the pixie dust. You're getting a little bit of the sprinkles on you at the same time. But it's got to be all about them from a content perspective, in, in, my, in my opinion. It will benefit you, but that shouldn't be the focus. The focus should be them and benefiting them and helping them. And then a little bit of that pixie dust rubs off on you. It's, it, I think of it like moths, right? You, when you fucking get a moth in your house and it's flapping about and it's freaking all over your clothes and you're trying, to, you're trying to get it in a glass and you're trying to get it outside to, without killing the moth, 
um, it, it, there's just dust of these moths everywhere. You, you can't escape it, right? I'm, yeah. I had this literally yesterday. Uh, I brought in a shirt that was hanging on the line, drying outside, and I didn't realize that there was a moth on it. And I brought it in and I laid it down on the bed. And I was like, ah, oh, I, I, I went to fold it. And there was a moth inside there. And it was still alive. And I gingerly took it outside. But there was moth dust all over my shirt. Yeah. That's how I think, that's how I think of this. I, lo- I love that pixie dust. And it, you know, it is perfect for what we're thinking about with our wholesale business. It, you know, as you can see, we've got the D2C you know, consumer content calendar here. We've got our campaigns, the promotions we're thinking of running, key trends, trade moments, but we're not going hard in our wholesale perspective. And then we're not even thinking about how we're talking about our charities throughout the year. And there's probably a seasonal element for, for our charities. There's an element of like animal days, which we're, we're always on and that's core to our business. And their campaigns. But- that you can tail on. So you can put together this yeah. exactly, this campaign calendar. You can do the exact same thing for your charities and for your B2B partners. Yeah, and I think that's so crucial just as a little unlock for how we're starting to build the rest of the business around maybe a, a, a more core and, and probably a more like sustainable and repeatable model as well. At the moment, it's a bit... It's heavily seasonal. Whereas, whereas these B2B businesses... You know, these B2B buyers, they're trying to de- decrease their seasonality. And in fact, you are effectively tailing on their lack of seasonality because they, they will be carrying a range of products from a range of suppliers and from a range of categories. So by definition, they are always working to become less seasonal. So you can benefit from their lack of seasonality by by unifying your marketing plans and programs to to – um, you know, to to amplify each other's go-to-market proposition, you can amplify each other. And the same with your charities. You know, your charities are trying to raise money year-round, absolutely Christmas time, and there'll be certain times of the year when people are more of a giving mood, a giving mode, absolutely. So they'll be somewhat seasonal, most likely. Or if they're working with seabirds, for example, and there's a migration time of the year, then they'll have maybe like a, a big fundraising at a specific time of the year that's relevant to that animal. Absolutely, oh, I totally genius. get that. yeah. But, 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 you know, the, the reality is they will have their own calendars that you should work in with to de-risk the seasonality of your business. That is, that is so crucial. And I think probably one of the last slides I'll leave you with, Jason, um, I guess at the, the highest level is that kind of seasonality view and may, or may probably actually more, maybe more the content calendar and then how it relates to our core marketing funnels from an e-commerce perspective. And this is something we're thinking about for the D2C business, but I'm really interested to see how you think about it for the B2B side of things. So obviously we've got, you know, kind of the core spends. This is probably, this is my most least favorite slide, that's for sure. You know, our main channels, Facebook, Google, Klaviyo with our emails. Then we've got kind of non-core around, you know, Microsoft, Etsy, Pinterest, and then some experiments we're doing around with, you know, affiliate marketing in particular. Um, all kind of tying up to how we're doing, you know, overall in total, it's kind of sitting at that 3.1 times ROAS with a, with a relatively low spend. But how do you think about that for a wholesale business? Look, I think until you've got more channels that are contributing significant revenue to the B2B side of the business, it's awfully hard to say, okay, we should double down here and we should maybe pull back a little bit of spend here because it's just not driving significant ROI for us. At the moment, you've really just got the fair channel. Now, let's say 18 months from now, 
you're selling on Fair, you're selling on Amazon, you're selling on eBay, you're selling on the Iconic uh, from a from a marketplace, pure marketplace perspective. Yeah, and you're you're doing you know like decent business. Maybe it's not just twenty five percent each, but it's it's significant enough revenue contribution that you wouldn't want to dump them, but maybe you want to reallocate some spend. So let's say on the Amazon channel, you've got a breakdown of listing fees, selling fees, and say Amazon PPC. Let's just say hypothetically, okay? And let's say hypothetically, as we chart out our our PPC on Amazon, the ROI just isn't there in comparison to say Facebook or or Google, right? Then we say, okay, let's continue selling on Amazon because it's it's a significant revenue contributor, but the 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 ROAS on our Amazon PPC is so shit that let's reallocate that to the channels that are driving better revenue, right? Doesn't mean we'll never do it again. Doesn't mean we, I, I think you have to revisit these channels every six to 18 months. You have to revisit these channels because they are an evolving channel. And when you think about Amazon PPC from zero to the third biggest ad network in the United States in what, under five years or something like that, it's insane. Like it's yeah. insane. So, so there's somebody getting ROAS out of Amazon PPC ads, and some of those brands don't even flip and sell on Amazon. So something's working somewhere. So the the reality is it's it's probably worth a test and try. I wouldn't say go and allocate 50% of your budget there, but you, you probably need to allocate somewhere around 25 to 30% of your ad budget to test and learn. So instead of just instead of 100% of your budget going on what works and and what has always worked, it's no, let's allocate a quarter of our budget to test and learn on new channels or new formats uh, or new distribution channels, et cetera. And, and that's what I'm doing. So if I think about it through the lens of my personal brand, right, for the last two years, two, two and a bit years, my podcast was audio only because audio was easier to edit, it was easier to post-produce, and it was easier to distribute automatically from my podcast host. But I've never heard of an audio clip going viral except no. for maybe reuse and attaching to a video on a, on a reel, but I've seen a lot of video go viral. Yeah. And so I, I made the decision, shit, this is going to be a lot of extra work. It's about 10 times the effort to, 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 to produce video and distribute video, especially short clips that you clip out and then you distribute on short video platforms, TikTok, Instagram, Reels, you know, YouTube shorts. It's a lot more effort, but my God, the, and I've been doing it for the last two months, it has made a dramatic impact on the recognition that I'm getting on those platforms. And some of my, some of my YouTube shorts are getting over 100 views per short. Now, that, like, that's insane compared to the listenership because I'm still a very small niche podcast. Some of, my, some of my episodes of my podcast will get 100 listens in a month, right? right? right. So, so when you think about it like that, Anything that you can do to increase your distribution is going to have an outsized impact on on name and brand recognition and recall. I think that's such a good place to leave it as well. You know, one of the experiments we're considering at the moment is, are we going to do enough on, let's take shorts as a perfect example. You know, we can cut up these clips, no problems, but it's been always a problem to think about how are we actually going to allocate budget to that but if we can think about it as a marketing aspect that's just straight slam dunk let's just take you know a hundred pounds from our facebook budget and put it on you know someone to kind of yeah just roll the dice there that's fantastic jason well, and, been... and and actually with new technology sorry to interrupt you 
So I didn't do short video clips until Opus came along. Right, and right. Opus AI is is takes my long form video, chops it up, adds the adds the subtitles automatically, highlights them, puts the emojis in there automatically in the right spots, automatically clip, clips it up, chops a, a you know a one hour video into ten short clips that then you just pick from, and then you just deploy exactly as is. Or what I do is I first upload it to TikTok, I add some music, then I download it back from TikTok, and that becomes the short video that goes up to Instagram Stories and YouTube Shorts. And and that production process is almost entirely hands-off. Sure, from a distribution and upload perspective, I still need to manage that, and I also upload it, uh, and, and I go back. So I upload it to Rumble, and I upload it to YouTube, those short clips, but in the description, I link back to the full video from the description of those short clips so that they can see the full thing if they want to. So there's a little bit of time and a little bit of effort tied up in that, but from a clip generation perspective, like using the right tooling can cut your post-production time down from hours down to minutes. Yeah, that's so good. And you know, thank you so much, Jason, for your time today. It's been absolutely fantastic. I can really see you know the benefit of getting a specific person as you know the B two B e commerce specialist on our business, and that's coming through loud and clear. I think some of my favorite things, in particular, around what are we doing on our channel risk management, how are we thinking about our ICPs, are we actually going out to where they are. How can we leverage, you know, the customer social proof, the charity social proof, the wholesale, you know, uh, places of proof, and and really work that into the entire business? So that's been fantastic, Jason. Where can everyone find you? Our best place is probably LinkedIn. Um, I post there almost every single day. My podcast, the E Commerce Edge Podcast. We're up over 200 and I think 35 episodes now. So go and check that out if you're interested in e-com, omni-channel, digital retail, B2B, whatever it is you're interested in, we, we cover it. Um, I also, uh, on my website, greenwoodconsulting.net, I also have a free mentorship program that's accessible through my through my uh, greenwoodconsulting.net website. It's completely free. We have group and one-on-one mentorship so they can go and sign up there as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jason. Thanks everyone for listening in on another episode. Of course, you can like, subscribe and follow for more and we'll see you next week. Thanks, Andrew.